0: morning to you. Take your Bibles if you would. and Let's look at Luke chapter 12. We are in this study of the life of Christ where He is on His way to Jerusalem. And what's amazing about our study is that on His way, He's really got a short time left on the earth and He is set and focused. His conversations and His dialogues and discussions are pointed. He is... Uh, as it were, dispensing out amazing expressions of grace in his warnings and in his reproofs and his discussions with the crowd around him. It doesn't matter whether they're the religious fickle or whether they're people who have no clue or whether there are some in the crowd who've already been followers of Christ and are continuing to follow his word as new disciples. It doesn't matter who's out there. He is focused and concentrated on giving these great moments on his way to Jerusalem, where it, is, it does the crowd well to pay attention to his words. And it's no different here when we come to the end of chapter 12. And so we want to look at what Christ does now as he comes to this last little section that Luke records for us in the 12th chapter. I'll introduce it by saying that it's no surprise to us that there are certain times in people's lives when affliction and heartache, Hits and we're more open and sensitive to discussions about spiritual things. I mean, funerals alone are an example of that. They bring together people from all walks of life, and those same people from different corners of the earth ponder questions of the meaning of life, and they ponder questions of death and, and eternity. It's also true that there's a characteristic uptick in church attendance and spiritual interest whenever there's some community Affected by suffering and affliction, you know, in the wake of some natural disaster, where it was an earthquake or or tsunamis, etc. People want to talk about God and they want to ask questions like, "Is He a good God?" When there's so much suffering on the earth, and it's almost uh, never that you'll see a conservative evangelical pastor on some talk show unless there's been some tragedy. If there's some tragedy, then then people are wanting to know, and so they gather these people who will speak the truth, and there seems to be an open access to whatever the man believes, whatever that person believes about the truth, at least for a time. It's also true that in the wake of some personal tragedy, like a crime committed against someone, we have communities affected by bombings and and school shootings and things like that, or even a personal calamity like disease or the loss of a loved one, the breakup of someone's family. Our society makes sure that counselors are on call so that you can get on the phone and talk to someone about your psychological health or even your spiritual interests. This is, it seems, universal to humanity in the wake of suffering. And it's because, it should be no surprise to us, that the Creator has made us with the knowledge of the Creator embedded within us, and so the eternal things are of interest to us. Solomon said that eternity is set in the hearts of human beings and God does everything that might move humanity to fear him, Ecclesiastes 3 says. When Paul preached at the Areopagus on Mars Hill to the pagan crowds around him, he said, look, everything God does is so that you might grope for him and find him. We have the eternities embedded within us and When it comes to human suffering, we get fearful, and we get anxious, and we need answers. And by nature, we gravitate toward eternity, and we want to ponder the eternal God, and because He made everything, we want to ponder meaning. But sadly, it's also true that as fast as spiritual interest comes into someone's life through affliction, it goes out just as fast. It rushes in, and it rushes out doesn't take very long before the level of desperation that people have been feeling starts to decrease and time goes by and life must go on and so people want to get back to some level of normalcy in their life. And as the pain and the affliction subside, so does their desire to talk about deeper questions of life's meaning and purpose. God often does pour out abundant grace during times of suffering. It's Typical that in times of affliction, even in a community, it is typical that God moves mightily on the hearts of people. In fact, for untold masses across the globe, no one in some cultures would ever give a single thought to the question of whether they belong to the Creator or not, were it not for some severe affliction. It is only in times of disaster that people often will address the question of meaning in life, And no other circumstance will push them in that direction except some calamity. The affliction and suffering severe enough to cause someone to take stock of their life is an amazing grace from God, and He often gives those things. But what is shocking is just how fast people can go back to the routine of their life after an affliction, virtually ignoring the questions about their eternal destiny, spiritual things, spiritual issues, eternal things, things that really matter, things they should know instinctively by the emptiness of this life as they experience it like every other human being. It's too quick that the urgency is gone. It's too fast that the previous sober-mindedness has faded. No more conversations about life and death. No more discussions about beliefs. The ready counselor's phones stop ringing and any local pastor will tell you where there's been a tragedy in the community that the church attendance that ballooned for several weeks suddenly drops again even further. What happened? Well, what happens is people miss the time of their visitation. They do not take stock of spiritual realities because to do so, they would have to admit something. What happens is the affliction causes them fear and anxiety for which then they formulate questions of eternal things, but they miss their opportunity to go further because it would require some things. It would demand that they begin to take stock of areas of their inner life they do not want to take stock of, confessions they don't want to make, admissions they do not want to concede. And so people become blind to the day when God brought about some gracious notation of grace in front of them, some gospel interest he brought to their doorstep. They're blind to it. They don't read the situation rightly. I think I told our church many years ago of a friend of mine who, who uh, had a lifelong friend that they would hunt together all the time and fish together all the time. And he would always share the gospel with his friend. He'd always tell him about Christ and warn him about, you know, the urgency of dealing with his spiritual life now, instead of waiting, and he always put it off, he never wanted to really talk about those things. and So they were deep sea diving at one point, and sure enough, as would be inevitable for anybody who does that regularly, he got threatened and attacked by a shark, and almost took his life, and he was in the hospital, and, and my friend was giving him the gospel, saying, you see, you have another opportunity, you've been spared, this is the grace of God in your life, maybe you ought to take this as a harbinger and begin to think about this to which his friend constantly replied, but he'd always said, oh, you know, you're always saying there's some grand purpose behind these things. And Christians always think, oh, they're just circumstances. They're not purposeful. You guys think that there's always some big divine message being sent through them, but there's not. And so it wasn't long where some years later they were hunting and having that same conversation on the trail. You see, brother, you know, I just want you to know there's an urgency here and his friend kept saying, you know, you think there's always some purpose behind these things. So so what you're telling me is if I were attacked by a bear, you know, we would, you know, there'd be, and I was spared, I I would, it would be a message from God. And he said, Yeah, absolutely, it would be. And sure enough. It wasn't long after on the trail where he was attacked and mauled, almost lost his life. So <laughs> Almost lost his life. And there he was, unconscious in the hospital, as my friend describes it. His friend woke up, and he just looked at him. <laughs> and, uh, of course, you know, the story goes, he didn't use it as an opportunity to take stock of his life. He missed the opportunity. He didn't read the situation rightly. He was concerned about earthly things. I mean, he was an expert in some earthly things, even survival Perhaps but not spiritually. And, and if it weren't for personal tragedy, what about the everyday common graces that every human being experiences from the hand of God? Jesus said, quoted in Matthew 5.45, that God sends rain on the just and the unjust, on the righteous and the unrighteous, and he causes a sun to rise on the evil and the good. And you would think that such divine benevolence would cause people to soften in their hearts toward their Creator and perhaps begin to imagine being thankful and want to know this Creator who allows such great things, but they miss the lesson. They let the everyday kindnesses of God dispensed on them from heaven bypass them as to the implications. And then there are not only those who've suffered affliction in the grace of God that it might turn their heart toward Him, and they experience the common grace of personal, common grace every day, but they've also been given a greater grace in that someone somewhere told them about a Savior, a specific name, an individual, a man who walked the earth, who died a death to pay for sin. They've heard about Christ. So they've had every grace offered to them. They're concerned greatly about earthly matters and yet brought to their doorstep is the grace of a personal tragedy, the common grace of God that they didn't ask for that is dispensed on them every day and then someone, by the providence of God, gives them a message about a Savior, a payment for all their sin, pardon and compassion, forgiveness for all that you've ever done, the answer to all the questions that you have about meaning and eternity the promise of supernatural comfort in the midst of any affliction, and the promise of divine power for living the most blessed life, even though all around us is in chaos. And yet, still, no matter how much is heard about Jesus of Nazareth, no matter how many ways he demonstrated beyond question that he is the Messiah, he is who he says he is, he's the benevolent Savior of sinners and the Lord of the universe, no matter how many times the good news of the opportunities proclaimed, two people, they still utterly miss their opportunity, their visitation. They pass it up. They don't see it. They don't take the times seriously. They don't read the times, as it were. Now, they have the mental capacity to do so. There's nothing wrong with the way people reason. Romans 1 says that these things are clearly made known You know, I think about that. I think about all of the things that we see in life just by virtue of the way we're made. You have the mental ability to see these things. Romans 1 says that you can see them. They're clearly seen. They're made evident. It's the way you're made. You're a moral being. You have a conscience. What is that? You can't measure it, but you have it. God gave it to you. You are a soul. You are a living being you relate as one who's born bearing the image of God. You're made in the image of God. That's what makes us distinct from animals. We see these things. We experience these things. So you have the mental capacity to reason that there is someone out there who made these things. And if he has promised to sustain his people, protect them, give them grace, and dispense forgiveness to them, you would think, If we have the mental capacity to reason that he must be responded to in love, the same love he gives to us, you would think we would. Listen, beloved, that is the fundamental problem with our depravity. We have the mental ability to think our way there, but not the willingness, not the moral will. Our morality is corrupted. We become experts at building things in this life but we do not want to be experts about the inner life. We solve problems between humans, but we do not want to solve our problem between us and God because then we'd have to admit there is a problem between us and God. We engineer solutions to everything conceivable on the earth that gets in our way, and we make those obstacles go away. But the spiritual obstacle between us and God we will not deal with Because morally, we'd have to admit some things we do not want to admit. We play hard, we work hard, we achieve things, and we glory in having conquered whatever was in the way. But we miss the only thing that matters at all. We miss the answer to our spiritual emptiness and hopeless sense that all of life is meaningless. That is nagging every human being. You know how it is. Nothing satisfies You can stockpile, you can find relationships, you can be as happy as any human in a fallen world could possibly be with the things that go on horizontal and the things the earth has to offer. And everyone knows because it nags in our minds, why does this not satisfy? Have you ever wondered why human beings never say, well, this is all there is and I'm happy with that? Some believe this is all there is, but then they say, hey, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And when you get with them privately, that nags at them that this is all there is. That nags at them that this is all there can be. Every atheist structure that has ever existed in humanity and passed down has at the back of it this admission that if it's just a joke, if it's that meaningless, then what's the point? That's right. That's actually a consistent perspective, and yet it still nags the atheist how that could be. Why is it when eternity said in my heart that this is all there is? That can't be. That can't be all there is. We have personhood. We have souls. We have relationship. We have depth. We have reasoning. We can think these things through. There must be something greater than this. We know that. But morally, we suppress it because we do not love the light John 3 says, we hate the light by nature. We want to run from it because when the light comes, we're exposed as having loved our sin, and we want to engage in our sin without consequence. And yet the consequence is coming. And so we have one of two options. We can either soften and begin to search for answers about spiritual things instead of always just glorying in (laughs) earthly solutions or we can suppress that truth and miss the day of our visitation. This is what Jesus is dealing with here in this last section of chapter 12. He turns to the masses and he calls them out for what he calls hypocrisy, for being experts in earthly knowledge while being unwilling to become experts in spiritual realities. Look at Luke 12 beginning in verse 54. Just follow along as Jesus unfolds this little dialogue. He was also saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say a shower is coming, and so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say it'll be a hot day, and it turns out that way. You hypocrites. You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky Why do you not analyze this present time? And why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? Because while you're going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there, make an effort to settle with him so that he may not drag you before the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, you'll not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. Jesus is exposing the problem here when someone misses the grace of a personal tragedy that calls them to stir up their heart to eternal things or the common grace of God that they are just ignoring every day or when someone gives them the actual truth about a Savior and they just walk away from it. Jesus exposes the problem and he does it by calling out pride from two angles. He calls out pride from two angles. First, the pride that causes you to miss who Jesus is. You won't investigate Jesus. Look, he is on the horizon. He, is, he has drawn a line in the sand. As we saw earlier, he lit a fire on the earth with his work on the cross. You cannot get away from this figure. All across the globe, Jesus of Nazareth, one man in one period of time, in one small plot of land on the earth, is the central feature of the universe. No one gets away from him. No one ignores Christ. And yet he says to these people... You will pay very meticulous attention to a host of other things on the earth that don't matter, and you won't pay any attention to me. You won't even work to know me. You won't even explore the question. People do that all the time today. They don't explore the question at all. They get very uncomfortable with the name of Jesus and will live in ignorance, yet they'll know how to do a host of other things that don't matter. So Jesus has to rebuke them for the hypocrisy that causes them to miss the Savior Himself while they're busy about becoming experts in other things. And secondly, He calls them out for their pride, which causes them to minimize the threat. In the second part of His little comment here, He he says, you're minimizing the threat, and you better not minimize the threat because the threat is there, it's very real, it's coming. And there's no guarantee that you'll see tomorrow. Tomorrow. Now let's just look at this for a moment. The, the, the pride that misses the Savior altogether. Notice he was saying to the multitudes, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say a shower is coming, so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, it'll be a hot day, and it turns out that way. And you might be thinking that bringing up the Palestinian weather patterns is a strange way for Jesus to introduce what he wants to say. But after some reflection, it is the perfect way to begin because mentioning the crowd's grasp of weather is a reference not merely to weather, but to their survival expertise. That's what he is referencing here, their ability to survive. Now, my wife always laughs at me because I've become like you, an amateur meteorologist. Haven't you? With all your apps and things? I mean, somebody says, what's the weather going to be? Oh, well, let me tell you. <laughs> and I just whip out like four or five apps and by the way, it's going to rain next in, the, in a minute or two over your car. You're going to need to check that out close your windows. I mean, they're down to the minute, aren't they? Two minutes, the rain's coming. And sure enough, you go outside, you close your windows, you saved your seats because two minutes, the rain came. And, and that wasn't the way it was like before the digital world. In fact, you had to read the weather. One of the patriarchs who's with the Lord of our ministry has lived here many, many years. And, uh, and you could just tell there was a storm brewing that was of a different kind when it was during the tropical hurricane season. And they would just watch the clouds. And, and it is true. I've lived here 17 years. And prior to that, in the 80s, I lived in North Florida and we went through a few hurricanes. And there's a certain gray color that comes with tropical storms. There's a certain movement to them. And you just can tell there's something out there brewing that's tropical. And I'm, we're no expert. We're just kind of watching patterns and things like that. Well, for survival's sake, in an arid part of the world, crops uh, depended upon how how well you could read the weather, and your very survival in a hot, arid area uh, depended upon how well you could read the heat index. And that's basically what Jesus is dealing with here. That area of the world is very much a desert, and yet a larger source of their food at the time, came from farming. And so Jesus says, look, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say a shower is coming, so it turns out. He's pointing out that they had become experts in human survival regarding how the weather would be affecting their livelihood, their food supply, their crops. They knew the patterns. They could forecast down to the very day. And they drew right conclusions from their years of experience with the weather. They noted its unpredictability and the factors involved. They calculated the risks. They knew how to harness the seasons for their advantage and to gain the greatest yield. They worked hard at it. They became experts at it. And they, they used it for their livelihood. And on the open market, some of them got rich doing it. They spent all that time analyzing. The verb Jesus use, uses here means to test by certain factors and prove it to be so. So, I mean, this is, this is science. They're using scientific factors, and they're testing in order to prove those factors genuine. And Jesus says, man, you spend all this time surviving in an earthly way. You hypocrites, he says. Why? Because you congratulate yourself for spending all your lives learning how to survive and thrive in the physical realm, but you refuse to pay the slightest bit of attention in researching me. In researching why I do what I do, what I say, the power I've put on display, and where I'm headed and why. I've given it to you on the Temple Mount. I've preached it in the multitudes. I've showed you miracle after miracle. I have told you the message again and again, a ton of different ways. I've answered your questions, stumped you. I've cast out demons in front of you. I've told you where I'm headed. I'm not gonna be your military leader. I am headed to Jerusalem to die. And yet, you will not become an expert in me or my work or my person or my message. You refuse to become an expert in any of it. You refuse to pay any attention to what it takes to survive in the spiritual holocaust that's coming. See, they're not taking any time to test the words of Jesus, to prove that these things are so. And the danger, as I said, of of protecting your loved ones from the heat index, Jesus mentions it. Verse 55, when you see a south wind blowing, you say it'll be a hot day. It turns out that way. Why was that important? Take cover. It's going to get hot. You can die out there. And Jesus says, hey, you become experts in making sure that exposure to the elements doesn't threaten your health physically or the lives of your children, but you won't pass on the slightest bit of knowledge and expertise to your family about spiritual threats to them. In fact, you're an obstacle to what they need to know spiritually. Jesus is referring here primarily to the fact that they follow him around, fascinated by his miracles. They listen to him speak all these bold things. They're curious about the controversy that it incites between he and the religious leaders of Israel. But that's as far as things go for most of them. That's it. And they were proud about it. They pride themselves on being independent survivors of the world around them. And they lead their families in becoming street savvy, worldly wise. Jesus says, guys, it's all hypocrisy because what you're not admitting is that you refuse to acknowledge what is obvious, what should be obvious to you already, what is obvious to your way of thinking, that life is empty, relationships are broken, Families get destroyed. Morality corrupts. Everything around you that should make it obvious that you have a spiritual problem as human beings and that even your high religion doesn't solve, you will not conclude and come to me. You know it's true, but you hide it. You suppress it. You cover it up, and you ignore the pangs within your own heart and conscience. Deep down, they know there's something far more profound. They ignore it. And they drag their families with them. You know people like that. Some young student is at school in fifth grade, sixth grade, and meets a friend, and that friend comes from an evangelical family and gospel-rich environment and starts telling them where they go to church and starts talking to them about God. And the, the child that doesn't know anything about Christ at all goes home and says, to their parents. I met this friend and their family goes to church. Can we go? I want to be with my friend. Can we go? And that parent says, no, we're not going to church. That's not important stuff. How would you know it's not important stuff? Did you investigate it? Did you investigate Christ for the sake of your children? Did you say, oh, they spoke about a Bible? Well, hey, let's go down to the bookstore and see if we can find one of these Bibles and let's open it up. And tonight for dinner, mom and I and you and your sibling will get together and we'll talk about the question that this friend posed to you and we'll see if this Bible they read has any answer. Shall we do that? Because it's important to think about spiritual things. No, they don't do that at all. They're not going to investigate Jesus. It's uncomfortable. You have to admit that something's missing in your life. It's uncomfortable if you know anything about what's missing, such as pangs in your conscience, broken families, sin in your life, guilt that harasses you. You have to admit that. And then you'd have to discuss who Jesus is because this religious community around you keeps saying that he's the answer, the only answer. You'd have to really explore that. You'd have to really know. The Jews were the same way in Jesus' day. I mean, they knew the law. They knew that a Messiah was coming, but in their minds, they thought that a Messiah would come and he would acknowledge them. He would come and he'd say, hey, Israel, you're the spiritual paragon of culture, and we l- I love how righteous you already are, so I'm going to snuggle up to you, make you my own, and together we're going to march on to Rome and we're going to destroy the Roman oppression and militarily we're gonna make a kingdom and I'm gonna restore it to you because you're so righteous. That's the Messiah they wanted. Jesus comes along and they can see his power and they're just like, No, I don't I'm not gonna investigate that. Hey, he rose Lazarus from the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead, and by the way, he's down there in Bethany, and he's sitting with Mary and Martha having a meal. Go down there and take a look. They went down there to take a look just to see if it was true, and sure enough, Lazarus was dead, was alive, and they they didn't go in the house and say, man, we've got to know your Savior. Oh, no, they just said, well, we see that he's alive, but so what? (laughs) So what? What? Man, if he has a message that he's the only way and that he's the Messiah and your Old Testament prophet said he would do these kinds of signs and wonders, you're not going to investigate that? Jesus says, you're a hypocrite because you will investigate the weather to make sure your crops will survive and you'll stay out of the intense heat because you've mastered your environment but you can't master your own heart. Why? Because you'd have to admit something that you do not want to admit. Jesus didn't do miracles to fascinate. He didn't preach bold things to spark debates. He drew a line in the sand with himself. And the Jewish leaders were the biggest hypocrites of all of them. Look for a moment at Romans chapter 2 very quickly. Romans 2 where Paul says this very thing to them outright. Romans 2, 17. He says and he's speaking here of why no one will get leniency. Hey, the Gentiles won't get leniency because they never knew the law of God and the Jews won't get leniency because they were special enough to have the law of God. Nobody gets leniency. God is impartial. You will come on the basis of faith or not at all. Verse 17 of chapter 2, hey, if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and you know His will and you approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law, I mean, there it is. They even test and approve What's essential in the law for living a righteous life? I mean, they were theologians, meticulous. And you're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind. In other words, you have eyesight, no one else does. And a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish. Man, you're the rod of God to correct people because you're in his hand as an instrument, so they thought. You're a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? Listen, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He is saying, look, if you miss your day of visitation, your day of grace, When God is speaking to you about your heart, the the reason you'd walk away from that is pride. It's hypocrisy. Because over here in your life, you're taking care of everything else meticulously. Oh, you went to business school? You got a PhD in business or an MBA and all that was necessary, and you have built a business, and you don't know your Bible? You know your hobbies and what it takes to really enjoy them. You don't know or invest any time in the permanent work, the eternal things. You know your sports statistics, but you don't know your Savior by devotion and time. Christians can do the same thing. We haven't missed our day of visitation in the gospel, but after that, we can miss our service. We can miss serving Christ. Why? Same pride, same hypocrisy. It creeps in. Man, pride makes you miss the Savior. Pride makes you miss serving Him. Pride, pride, pride. It just gets in our way and chokes out everything good. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, it is pride that has kept you from Him. You've got to think about that. You've got to consider that. Today, you must consider it. I mean, how hypocritical would it be to come here to a service and listen as if you're wanting something and to walk away from out in, without investigating who Jesus is, without really knowing? I mean, one day, unbelievers who've attended church services are going to stand in front of Christ and all around them sat opportunities to search out and know Christ, with believers all around them, and they're going to stand before the Lord, and he's going to say, I allowed you, by my grace, to be a part of multiple weekend services in the gathering of God's people, and you had all, it was like having research books for the Messiah all around you, and you didn't with it. Why? Because you'd have to admit some things you didn't want to admit. You'd have to see your need for Christ. You'd have to admit that he's your rightful judge and that you're not reconciled to him. You'd have to confess your guilt and your ruin and that he's your only hope. Jesus says anything less is hypocrisy because you run around surviving in all the stuff that doesn't matter and you miss Christ. Wow. And then he looks at it from a second angle. He says pride will cause you to miss the Savior, but pride will also cause you to to minimize the threat or mask the threat. Verse 57, why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? Judge is the same word, root form for that testing and approving. Why do you, and this is emphatic in the original, even on your own, that's an emphatic phrase. Why do you not even on your own when you could? That's the implication when you have what is necessary, you have all this skill and expertise in these things that don't matter, and yet you have all the resources to know for sure the imminent threat that is upon everyone eternally. You can see it, you can know it, it is before you, and yet you ignore all of those tools. You should be judging what is right on your own initiative, but you won't. What would it look like to, for a person to see things rightly and and assess the threat? Well, Jesus says it in verse 58. While you're going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there, make an effort to settle with him. I mean, this is a great analogy. This is, hey, the judgment's coming. You're right now on your way there. You, you may not know how close you are because none of us knows when we will lose our last breath. But on your way, Jesus is saying, if you really knew the threat, you'd settle accounts with the magistrate right now. It is appointed unto men once to die, then comes judgment. How do you know that you will have another breath? You do not know what life is like tomorrow, James said. So you gotta settle accounts now. Jesus says it's it's hypocrisy to look at the resources in front of you and not on your own initiative judge what is right and begin to settle the account. Why are you refusing to look at what really matters in your life? Say, what is is it Jesus would be referring to? He'd be referring to all the spiritual issues. You know you have guilt. Every unbeliever knows they have guilt. In fact, if there isn't a spiritual reality, and there isn't this thing inside of every human being that can't be touched physically or, or examined by a doctor's scalpel, but it's there... If there's no God that made it, and there's no God to whom we're going to have to respond with it, then why acknowledge that it even exists? Why acknowledge guilt at all? In fact, That is the ultimate moral question. If we're just flesh and bone and blood, and it's over after that, then there should be no moral code at all about how you treat someone else. It should be just like the animal world. Take or be taken. Kill or be killed. But it isn't like that. Because embedded within us, Romans 1 says, is the basic framework of moral right and wrong, and the conscience holds you to it. You know you have guilt. Why are you not responding to that and settling accounts with God? You know that sin overtakes you and takes you further than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, costs you more than you want to pay. You know that sin does that. Why, are you, why do you not settle that issue? Why do you not go to God and say, help me deal with this thing? You know it destroys your life. You know it destroys families. You know it'll take you away from all that is good and wholesome. You know that. Why do you not settle accounts, Jesus says? Because you refuse. And yet you'll settle every other account. You'll make sure your bank account is reconciled. You'll make sure that human relationships are going exactly as you would like, the best way that you can. You'll make sure you have the job you want. You'll meticulously hover over every detail of things that don't matter, and you won't settle accounts with the eternal. But you know that it eats at you? Relationships are unhealthy at home. You won't face it. Your heart is filled with hatred toward those you've hurt, and yet you know that you've done the same to others. So that's hypocrisy, and you won't go settle that. You steal, you lie, you pretend to be religious. Jesus says, why do you refuse to face the implications of these things? And over time, he says, if you ignore this long enough, if you ignore the implications long enough of your sin, you'll eventually not see the threat anymore at all. Pretty soon, broken relationships are no longer a big deal to some people who have seared their conscience and just suppressed it and silenced it. They destroy relationships left and right, don't really care if it's destroying them. They, For them, it is. they are like an animal on instinct. Guilt is... Long, suppressed, so they don't even hear the conscience anymore, though it's screaming, they can't hear it. And mistreating others, lying, cheating, it becomes commonplace. Chasing cheap lusts becomes the norm. Jesus says, look, be sure sure that your judgment is coming. Notice how he says, you go with your opponent to appear before the magistrate. That's That's an analogy to the judge of all the earth. And you won't make any serious effort to settle your sin debt before you get there. <laughs> you see, it is pride that misses the opportunity to see Christ for who He is and find a Savior, and it's pride that would minimize the threat that is coming. It's pride. Man, we can see it, we know it. But we will shut out the implications when we don't want to have to admit what meeting Christ would force you to admit, that on your own, you will always choose sin. and That on your own, you will always complain about facing the consequences for your sin. On your own, you will always run after that which destroys others. On your own, you will always live for yourself above others. And even when you live for others, it is ultimately for yourself and your reputation. On your own, even your best religion is all about your reputation and your own goodness before God. That's what you'd have to admit. Mankind minimizes the threat. In fact, Peter mentions this in 2 Peter when he says, people are saying all the time in the last days, where is the promise of His coming? Jesus is saying here, look, lest he drag you before the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. Look, if you get imprisoned by your own sin and your own guilt before a holy God, verse 59, I say to you, you'll not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. What's the implication? You will be lost forever because there's no way to pay for your own sin and have an end to it. The offense is that great against God and to reject that is greater still. You cannot pay for your sin in hell and have an end. It's that offensive to a holy God. Jesus Christ could pay for all of it by taking the wrath for sinners upon himself in one death. Why? Because he was holy and didn't deserve it. And you won't settle accounts. Jesus says, I say to you, if you end up on that day... Facing a holy judge, and you have minimized the threat. Your hypocrisy will lead you to have to pay to the very last cent, and there is no last cent in hell. There is no reconciled books in hell. It never ends. And you know, let me just say about believers. You know, when we haven't missed our day of visitation. We've met Christ and. By His grace in salvation, we have admitted what we have to admit because it's the only way you can come to Christ. But even still, our hypocrisy can live after we've come to Christ. Here we come to church, and we know what Philippians 2 says, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And then we leave here, and we go through the week. And what does our devotion to Christ look like? How white-hot is the flame for living for Christ? Is there an urgency? Do we minimize the threat? Or do we know things on the earth and become expert in those things, but we're never an expert in Christ and we're never an expert in the Scriptures and we're never an expert in battling sin? Why? Because we just like it easier. We just like it easier. This is a reproof to anyone in the crowd who is a believer that pride can cause you to miss the things about the Savior you ought to know. He's your Savior. You ought to know it. You ought to know Him. Pride can cause us to minimize the threat to the souls of those around us and our evangelism wane and our passion get weak, our testimony become thin. Love, it, these things ought not to be, Jesus says. It's hypocrisy. Don't miss the times. Don't misread them. Don't let pride keep you from the truth about Christ, about walking with Him, about knowing Him, about being devoted to Him, and don't let pride make you or cause you to mask the threat to souls, to the threat to your own Christian life. Don't let pride cause you to minimize the fact that you, may, you need discernment, but you may not have it because Hebrews 5 says it comes by practice, and you're not practicing it. Man, you know your business statistics but you don't know Scripture. You know what it means to cross the country. You work out your little plan in your Google Maps. and You meticulously work out the cost, and you cross the country, but you don't know what it means to walk with Christ faithfully and battle sin. Why pride? Jesus says it's hypocrisy to be an expert in earthly things and to be an amateur in spiritual things. Beloved, this is a tremendous gift to this crowd for Jesus to say these things. What a tremendous gift to say this to them. Why are you experts in survival horizontally and you're facing the imminent threat of your eternal demise and you pay no attention to it? That's hypocrisy. What a great encouragement and warning to God's people. If you know some loved ones around you that don't know Christ, just, just just take them to Jesus' words here. Hey, what are you an expert in and you've never investigated Jesus? And what do you think the threat really is when Jesus says it's imminent and it's eternal? Bow with me. Lord, thank you for